challenge his congregation to consider the question in everything they did, what would Jesus do? He started this series by putting together a storyline, a context in which to convey this message. It ended up being a seven-part sermon series, each week being a different portion of this long storyline that was constructed around um, a small town that he created, I'm assuming in his imagination, Raymond, based on the story probably set in the Northeast, a story that followed the townspeople as they were challenged to ask that question over and over again. Eventually, the series of sermons were brought together and formed a small book entitled In His Steps. It had an immediate following and popularity as a result of a miscue by the publisher a form that was filled out incorrectly. There ended up not being a copyright on that particular document. And so multiple publishers immediately began putting it out and within a very brief period of time, several weeks, 100,000 copies were sold. And it gained wide popularity. About 15 to 17 years ago in my own journey, it had a resurgence, as it has had several times in its history. And I remember very clearly there being a big rush to get bands around the wrist that had the initials on them, WWJD, standing for that question, what would Jesus do? It seemed to me that it started as a movement among several youth groups, but then had a particular explosion as those became very, very popular. I remember during that time span becoming rather cynical about the whole process. I found myself adding extra letters to the end of the WWJD that kind of created new questions that I thought didn't fit very nice and neatly into this little system of what would Jesus do. I ended up constructing scenarios, just thinking through the whole notion of how that idea was supposed to guide you, but I, I had questions like, well, sure, Jesus was absolutely wonderful when the children came and gathered around him, but what would Jesus do if he actually had to take those kids home and live with them? Sure, it was great that Jesus lived this wonderful life, but what if he had reached an older age when you get out of bed and the joints don't work quite right and the muscles don't quite get you to the next room very quickly? What would Jesus do then? I don't think he knows because he never lived that long. Now, that's ridiculous. I, I had a lot of other far more complicated and... Um, cynical questions, maybe for a later time, but my mind kept going down that pathway, there seemed to be a lot of circumstances where I don't find it very easy to answer that question. 
because I'm not sure what Jesus would do in some situations. I mean, I could make a guess, but I've been in moments where I felt like I've been with others who made an intelligent guess, and it was very different than my guess would have been. We've come through an interesting season in our country, and we've tried to talk a little bit about it as a church as we walked through an election campaign last fall and to ask the question, what would Jesus do? It landed in very different places with different people. And we've tried to talk through what it's like in the aftermath of that. And I don't know that that question leaves me in a place where I I can come up with quick solutions. Certainly not easy answers. It doesn't mean that the question is a bad question. I just struggle a little bit because as I go to Jesus' life, there are some incredibly powerful teachings and and, and moments where we see Jesus live out this journey. But it seems like living by the Sea of Galilee was a whole lot easier than sometimes what it feels like living beside San Diego. Or for people who are living in a refugee camp. Or for individuals who are living in a hostile home environment. Maybe that part of the journey has been easier for you. But I feel like as we've been walking through Corinthians, Paul is wrestling with this very thing. He he has a church that has a bunch of problems and life got messier than maybe anybody expected. It's not real easy for Paul to quickly go toward the Sermon on the Mount and grab out some of the best sayings there and apply it, though there certainly are some pieces that are applicable. We've used some of them in the past few weeks to try and address the things that Paul is talking about. But it's not like Paul can go to Jesus' closing discourse He didn't even have the Gospels. It's likely the Corinthians was written before the Gospels began to circulate among the church. And so Paul is trying to figure out, how do I put into practice the issues that have come up as major issues in this church that I love? As he writes back to try and address what he's heard is going on. And it seems to me in these opening chapters... It's very much like Paul is an outward processor. It's like we get to see his mind working as he works through his own arguments as well as the arguments with the church at Corinth. It's almost as if he's having a debate with himself as much as he's having a debate with the Corinthians. And so these issues have come up and Paul is trying to put into practice this notion of faith in action, real-world application, the issues they're facing, the divisions that they have, the, the teachers that they love, 
following the ones who actually took them into the baptismal waters. Debate over how they worship. I mean, it gets real nitty-gritty how they do potluck dinners. That some start eating all the good stuff before anybody else has had a chance to sit down at the table. Now, that's my paraphrase, but it's not too far off. You can read it and decide if I'm a long way off on that. But that's how nitty-gritty it gets in this letter. This particular passage, thank you, Tyler, for reading that. It is a really awkward passage. <laughs> kind of breezed over how awkward that was, but good job. I, we've got a man in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife. Ugh. It's not handled in the Beatitudes. <laughs> but here it is for Paul to wrestle with. Let me, though, give a little bit more context to this. Corinth. We've talked about it being the center of commerce, a marketplace, kind of like a crossroads for so many different cultures. I haven't said a whole lot about its reputation for... Um, Sexual promiscuity. And it was a very sexualized culture, city. It was known for its prostitution trade to cater to all of the travelers that came through and to the locals. It was common knowledge that Corinth had that kind of sexualized reputation. And it's not too difficult to imagine how the culture gets drawn into the church. Particularly given that this is a relatively young church. Those who come to an understanding of faith, they've grown up in a culture that's very different than the church proclaims. So Paul says, I just want to acknowledge that there's some sexual immorality that's going on, and it's, it's the kind that even those who aren't part of the church think is wrong. And here's kind of the kicker. Paul says, and you're boasting about it. As if somehow your inclusion, your uh, great sense of freedom finds its expression in this way, and you think that that's something to boast about. That you figured out this faith thing, and this is where it's led you? I want to acknowledge another thing about this uh, Corinthian culture, which I, I think I would say, let's be not too fast here to judge Corinth, we live in a culture that's very sexualized. And it's very easy to draw that into the church and somehow give great acceptance to things without raising the questions, raising the issues of what it says about us, what it means about our culture, what it implies about our health and, and how we maintain or, or work toward or right thinking about these things. 
it seems to me that a, a sexualized culture in so many ways is simply this desire for intimacy, which I think is innate. I think it's true in all of us. I think we're born with this desire to be intimate, to know our creator and to be known by our creator. And then that gets played out in how we live in relationship, to know the other and to be known by that person. That's what intimacy is about. But what sometimes happens is we allow a dysfunctional expression of that intimacy to go unchecked unbalanced, unquestioned. And our culture supports that. It breeds it because it has no need as a culture for balance. It prospers, it benefits, it, it, it gains power by allowing us to live into that one-sided sense of expression. Unchecked, unbounded, and it becomes incredibly dysfunctional. The desire to see the other. The desire to know the other person. To hear or read about the other person's life. Incredibly voyeuristic approach to living. Because it's not balanced by being seen myself. It's not balanced by being known for who I really am. The flip side is just as dangerous. To, to live a life where I, I want you to know all about me, see me, hear me. Th this notion that the world revolves around me. The narcissistic view that this is really my life. It's nice to have you along for the ride. We do this religiously as well. We live in this place where we want to know God. And that feels so spiritual, so sacred, to know God, to seek after God, to worship God. Oh my goodness, that sounds fantastic. Except that it's so dysfunctional if I don't balance by saying, 